Welcome to the Heartland Free Sermon Podcast. We're so happy to have you. If you're a first-time listener and you'd like to get to know more about us as a church, click the link in the podcast description. And if you'd like to fill out our online connection card, you can do that there as well. Thanks for joining us, and let's get into a fantastic message. We have a big election coming up on Tuesday, and uh, there is a clash of worldviews that's going on. It's all across our culture. Uh, you know it, and I know it. And uh, Governor Waltz and the Democrats, they have one worldview that they are promoting very, very diligently. And it's a worldview that includes abortion, which has taken 60 million American citizens. And if you happen to survive abortion, uh, they want to sexualize your children in schools. And folks, that, that breaks my heart, what they're doing to our kids in the public schools. And if you manage to somehow make it through the public school uh, with your head still on straight, and you manage to find one woman with one man and get married, then they don't want you to have any kids because you're going to leave a carbon footprint. And that could, carbon footprint's going to hurt planet Earth. That's, that's where that worldview is going. And it, it breaks my heart. Breaks my heart. And uh, so I encourage you to take that into consideration as you're going to the polls on, on Tuesday. And, uh, you know, our sermon today is all about worldviews, Okay. One of those worldviews is correct and one is not. It's either true, what I just told you is either true or it's false, you know? Uh, if, if you think that's a cheap shot, well, stay, stick around. Because if this book is true and the biblical worldview is true, then what I just said is 100% correct, okay? And if this worldview of the biblical worldview is a bunch of baloney, then, uh, then it's fine. You know, my opinion matters as much as anyone else's, and uh, I don't know, you know, I'm just as finite, I'm just a human being trying to find my way on this earth, just like you are, and uh, what uh, each of us believe as human beings counts very little, but what God believes and what God teaches is what counts. Okay, so what we're going to do today is we're going to compare two worldviews, okay? And uh, the centerpiece of the Christian worldview is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If that happened, folks, we're in good shape. And when Jesus came, he said, said, this is the greatest miracle I'm ever going to do, okay? And it's going to be just like another miracle in all, uh, I mean, uh, we can debate on whether it's the greatest miracle in the Old Testament or not, but uh, Jonah survived three days in the belly of a fish. And it may have been a whale, uh, but he survived three days. There is no human way that you can do that. And Jesus said, just like Jonah survived, you know, is, is that a bunch of baloney? You know, many, many people have said that. Well, that's just a story. That's a nice story. It's, it's uh, nice to tell the kids. The kids like whales and all that and so forth. But is it true? So we're going to talk about that today. Is that whole uh, 
tale of uh, the whale swallowing Jonah, is that true? And it better be true because Jesus said it was true. And he compared his greatest miracle to Jonah's greatest miracle, okay? So if that, if that is all true, then we're in good shape promoting and believing and teaching our kids the biblical worldview, okay? So we're going to look at that today, and let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I just come to you today, and I pray, Father, that every uh, attitude we have, every thought that we have, every action that we have would be pleasing in your sight, Lord. Uh, especially in, as we try to navigate all of this crazy stuff that we're seeing on TV and all of these negative commercials and so on. And uh, Lord, uh, Lord, our heart's desire is that you would be exalted. We know, Lord, that our salvation is not in politics. Uh, Father, it, it's, it's in you. And we want you to reign over America. We want you to reign over the state of Minnesota. We want you to reign over Annandale and the surrounding area here, the heart of the lakes area that we call home. We want you to reign over the children of our country and our state and our area here. Precious kids, Lord, made in the image of a holy God. Dearly loved by you, so valuable you sent Jesus to die for each and every person. Lord, help us, Father, as we work our way through all of the, all of the information. We're saturated with information today. Help us, Lord. Guide us today, we pray in your name. Amen. The prophet Jonah is one of those guys in the Bible. It's very hard to figure out. Now, on the one hand, he was selected by God as a prophet, which was a tremendous honor in ancient Israel. On the other hand, just about everything we read about the prophet Jonah is negative. First of all, God gives him an assignment in Jonah chapter 1. He gets on board a boat. He heads in exactly the opposite direction. Okay, God wants him to go to Nineveh. He heads toward Tarshish. 2,500 miles away. Now, that isn't exactly a great start, right? Is he a coward? Does he take off because he's scared? I don't really think so, since God sent a storm to stop him from running away, and he quickly owns up to being the culprit for the storm. So the other sailors toss him in the ocean, Everyone assumes he will die. He's in the middle of an ocean in a storm, okay? Uh, it, it would be a, a pretty good guess that he's going to die, right? Everybody, including Jonah himself, believed that he was done. So clearly, he is not a coward. And yet, even after he's swallowed by the whale, God spares his life. And even after he goes to Nineveh, and even after the entire city repents, Jonah's still not happy. And he pouts after God spares the city. The whole book of Jonah leaves one scratching their head and wondering, who is this guy? 
for a man who's supposed to be a godly man, he sure isn't acting like it. And yet we have to ask ourselves if we would do any better. Now recently I was reading a book, uh, The True Story of Duke Godfrey, in a new book entitled Defenders of the West. And I thought to myself as I read, Duke Godfrey, now that's Jonah. Duke Godfrey, he wanted God to punish his enemies, not show mercy to them. And interestingly, okay, during Jonah, God spared the city of Nineveh. 60 years later, you know what happened? God killed 185,000 Ninevites, Assyrians, in a single night, okay? Because they were coming, they had surrounded Jerusalem. 60 years later, 60 to 80 years later. So, uh, God did exactly that. Something happened in Nineveh after their great repentance. So Duke Godfrey, he wanted God to punish his enemies, God's enemies and the Duke's enemies. He was a very godly man. His peers described him as a man of uh, prayerful, humble, devout, God-fearing, merciful. And he spends all of his money mustering an army to liberate the Holy Land from the Muslims. And the reports coming back to Europe at that time were atrocious. This was the year 1090, about a thousand years ago. 30,000 churches had been destroyed in the Middle East by the Muslims. And when the Church of the Holy Sepulchre was destroyed, which was built over the tomb of Christ, the Duke said, that's it. This will not stand. So he gathers an army of 10,000 knights, 70,000 infantry. He sets out for Jerusalem, which is a long way from northern France. Okay? This is the first crusade right here. This is what happened. Okay? As they journey, they're repeatedly attacked by Muslim warriors. Several major battles, three years later, three years later, the duke and his army arrive at the gates of Jerusalem. By now, there are only a 1,000 knights left and 10,000 infantry. He's lost 90% of his army. There, perched on the walls of Jerusalem, were Muslim warriors taunting Godfrey and his men. They smashed crucifixes. They threw the crucifixes over the side. They hurled their curses. They fired flaming arrows. But defying all odds, Godfrey breaks through and defeats the Muslim army. But once inside, the fury of Godfrey's army was unleashed. 65,000 Muslims were slaughtered. The desire for revenge overwhelmed them. And yet, you see, in the midst of all this, the tender love for God that Godfrey has. Immediately after order is established, Godfrey puts on clean clothes. He goes to the tomb of our Lord. They had uh, destroyed the 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 church of the Holy Sepulchre, so only the tomb remained, and he approaches, not on foot, he's on his elbows and he's on his knees, and the tears are flowing down his face, and he joins in a massive worship service 
that the city of Jerusalem had not seen in 400 years. His army wanted to make Godfrey the king of Jerusalem. Godfrey replied, God forbid that I should be crowned with a crown of gold while my savior bore a crown of thorns. The only title he would claim was defender of the holy sepulcher. A year later, the duke dies after being struck by a Muslim arrow. He was 40 years old. Now, when I read about the Duke Godfrey, I see the prophet Jonah. Finally, on his way to Jerusalem, he's a valiant and he's a passionate man of God, but he had a hard time loving his enemies because his enemies were brutal. The Ninevites were described by nearly all historians as the scum of the earth, warriors who not only wanted to kill, they wanted to inflict as much torture as possible. They invented several means of torture. You see, I think deep down, Jonah was a good man. He was a godly prophet, which is why Jesus speaks of him with great respect in Matthew chapter 12. In fact, verse 41 tells us both Jesus and the Pharisees saw Jonah as a great prophet. And yet, like all of us, Jonah fell short, which is a powerful reminder to us that even the finest human being out there will fall short. Have you had any, had any human heroes let you down? I sure have. Oh, and oh, how we need to be careful not to put too much stock in human heroes because only Jesus in the end is worthy of our trust. This is the message that Jesus is seeking to impress on the wicked Pharisees who constantly opposed him. Jesus is worthy of our trust for four reasons. Jonah was a respected prophet of the Pharisees, but Jesus is far, far superior. And there's four reasons he's superior. First, because Jesus performed the greatest sign, the greatest sign ever. Verse 38, the Pharisees asked Jesus to do a miracle for them, but Jesus replies in verse 39, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except for the sign of Jonah. Now you have to keep in mind that the Pharisees had just seen Jesus heal a man with a shriveled hand. If you look back at verse 13, and he kept on healing people in verse 15. And by the time the Pharisees issued their challenge to Jesus in verse 38, Jesus by that time had performed thousands of miracles. So clearly what they're asking for is something really big, something out of the ordinary. Now scholars tell us, according to Pastor John MacArthur, there was a legend among the Jews at that time about a rabbi named Eliezer who made a locust tree move 300 cubits, 150 yards. And he also made a stream flow backwards. And he caused a building to lean forwards. That's what the legend was. The Pharisees wanted to see some fun stuff like that. They wanted Jesus to maybe, you know, paint the sky with a rainbow of colors or cause the moon to turn blood red like the... Prophet Joel said, 
Or maybe they wanted to see angels descending and ascending on a heavenly stairway like Jacob's dream in Genesis 28. Jesus wasn't playing that game. Instead, he offered one sign. He said, this will be the greatest sign of all time. He said, just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days, so Jesus will be alive, will be in the belly of the earth for three days and then come out alive. Jonah lived to tell about his harrowing experience. No one denied that. Today, scientists insist that no one could survive for three days inside a whale. Now, there are reports that James Bartley was swallowed by a sperm whale off the coast of the Falkland Islands in February of 1891, but that story is heavily disputed. Supposedly, the whale was captured a few days later and the sailors found Bartley inside, alive, but pale as a ghost. What we do know for sure is what happened just last year. A lobster diver named Michael Packard was swallowed by a humpback whale off the coast of Cape Cod. Did you see this in the news? But the whale spit him out after 30 seconds. June 21st, 2021. 30 seconds, Jonah made it for three days. That's why everyone regards it as one of the greatest miracles in the Bible. And yet Jesus vowed, I'm going to do one better. He would be in the belly of the earth for three days. Don't let the three nights bother you because that was a very common expression for any part of three days, okay? They've, they've shown that in the Greek, that that was a very, it was a, a common expression like we have many expressions today. Now, Jesus died about 3 p.m. on Friday, April 3rd, 33 A.D. He rose from the dead sometime before 6 a.m. on Sunday, April 5th, 33 A.D. The Pharisees would get their sign, but you know what? They didn't believe it anyway. In fact, according to Matthew 28, they paid the soldiers who were guarding the tomb to spread the false story that the disciples had stolen the body to create the illusion of a resurrection. And then Jesus made at least 11 appearances to over 500 witnesses over a period of 40 days, and then he ascended into heaven right in front of his disciples the very same men who one by one would lay down their lives for Christ in the coming years. Every one of the disciples except for the apostle John was martyred for their faith in Christ. Men will not die for a lie. They saw him, they touched him, they ate with him, they talked to him, and they watched him whew, right into the sky. That would do it for me. <laughs> Okay, now that is a sign greater than the sign of Noah, uh, Jonah, and greater than any miracle has ever been performed before or since. So the first reason you can place your trust in Jesus is because he performed the greatest sign. 
Now, the second reason you can trust him is because Jesus survived the greatest tragedy. Look at verse 40. Jesus says, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. No story, and by the way, this picture here is actually a whale shark, okay? So it's not in the whale family, it's a whale shark, a huge shark. No story in the Bible has been scoffed at more than the story of Jonah and the whale. Many experts say it's flat out impossible. And it's true that we have no proof that it happened other than the Bible. But here's what's interesting. According to gotquestions.org, great website by the way, you ever have questions about the Bible, go to gotquestions.org. According to gotquestions.org, the fish god Dagon was worshipped throughout the Nineveh area. Images of Dagon have been found in the palaces and temples of Nineveh. Sometimes he was portrayed like a mermaid, half human, half fish. Now imagine this, what better sign could God have sent to a city that worships a fish god than a man who had been swallowed by a fish and then spit up on shore, probably present-day Lebanon and likely in the presence of many witnesses. So imagine Jonah, his skin, his hair, his clothes bleached white from the fish's gastric juices, and he makes his way to Nineveh, followed by a group of witnesses who saw him get vomited up on the shore. You see, I think that whole thing scared the king of Nineveh spitless. Now, it's also interesting that the Babylonians, only a couple hundred miles away, they had a water god they called Annas in the Assyrian language, which is only one letter different than the Greek word for Jonah, which was Yannes. Annas, Yannes. Language experts say this water god was undoubtedly named for the Jewish prophet who got swallowed by a fish. At any rate, everyone agrees something big happened in that area that changed the course of history. But it wasn't as big as what happened to Jesus. When he died at 3 p.m. on April 3rd, 33 AD, his spirit separated from his body. Jesus' body was put in a tomb. Nicodemus and others wrapped it with 75 pounds of spices. But Jesus' spirit was not there. According to Ephesians 4, 9, his spirit descended into Hades, the abode of the dead. Hades had two compartments, the saved and the unsaved, the believers in Yahweh and the unbelievers. And according to 1 Peter 3.19, Jesus proclaims his victory over death and hell and sin and Satan, our four great enemies. And then according to Ephesians 4. 4, 8. Jesus ascended into heaven, taking all of the believers of Yahweh with him. He emptied out paradise and brought them to the Father. 
And then early on the morning of Sunday, April 5th, 33 AD, 36 hours after his body was placed in the tomb, his spirit, Shazam, rejoins his body and his body comes alive and walks out of that tomb. That Heartland family is why we can say today, Jesus survived the greatest tragedy. He not only triumphed over death, he triumphed over hell and sin and Satan. On that day, Jesus crushed the serpent's head, exactly as prophesied in Genesis 3.15. Now, it's true that the serpent struck the heel of our Lord. The agony on the cross was real. It stung. But when the spirit of Jesus, Shazam, returns to the body of Jesus and causes it to come alive, the serpent's doom was sealed. And that brings us to the third reason you can trust in Jesus, because Jesus changed the greatest sinners. Verse 41, Jesus told the Pharisees, the men of Nineveh, they're going to stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Did you know that skeptics had questioned whether there even was an ancient city named Nineveh? They laughed at the biblical account. How can the largest city of the world just simply poof, disappear? And then in 1845, the city was rediscovered. On the eastern edge of Mosul, Iraq, the second largest city in Iraq. Now you may remember that Mosul was conquered by ISIS in 2014. It was in the news all the time. And then it was retaken by Iraqi forces two years later after massive American airstrikes. Okay? Nineveh was just outside that city. And after Nineveh was rediscovered in the mid-1800s, a British diplomat named Austin Henry Layard wrote a book about what they found. The city was massive. Jonah 3.3 says it took three days to walk around the perimeter of the city. Skeptics laughed at that. There couldn't have been that size of a city back that far. But when Layard measured the distance, he described it as exactly three days' journey to walk around the circumference of the city. The locals had always insisted that Jonah was buried there. They have a tomb to mark the spot. It's known as Nabi Yunus in Arabic, which means the prophet Jonah. The Bible says the entire city repented of their sins from the king on down. That would be equivalent of Governor Waltz and the top Democrats all repenting of their worldview. Okay? Can you imagine that? See, that's, that's what would happen. Guys, we were really wrong. Uh, we're really pro-life now. And uh, we're not going to corrupt the schools anymore. We're going to teach the schools good biblical values. And uh, we want your kids to have lots of more kids and, uh, and uh, fill the earth, as Jesus commanded. Okay, That would be like the Governor Waltz and the top Democrats changing their mind and saying that. Okay, Can you imagine that happening? 
Through Jonah's preaching, the worst sinners in the world repented of their sins and they changed their ways. There is nothing like that anywhere else in the Bible. But here's the simple fact. It's nothing compared to what Jesus has done. Today, about two and a half billion residents of planet Earth profess to be Christians. If even 10% of them are genuine followers of Christ, that's 250 million. It could be two or three times that. Even if Nineveh had a million residents that found God, Jesus has outdone Jonah by at least a thousandfold if you add up all of the believers down through history. Many of you here today are living proof of that. I like to say that every person trusting in Christ is a miracle. But you know what? Some are trophy conversions, like the Apostle Paul, who persecuted the Christians intensely and then became one himself. I love the ministry. I am second. Have you ever gone to their website? Just read some of those testimonies. I am second means put God first, yourself second. Now, whether all the faith stories are genuine or not, God's going to have to decide that. I just know that it's really encouraging to watch the videos, read the stories about lives who've been changed by Christ, like Ainsley Earhart here of Fox and Friends. Ainsley shares her whole story. It's a beautiful story. Her story of losing a baby, but in the process of that, learning to place her trust in Jesus. Very, it's a magnificent story, and there are many, many more. Yes, Jesus has changed the greatest sinners. You know what? I know that for a fact because he's changed me. Okay? Praise God. Has he changed you? That brings us to the fourth reason you can trust in Jesus, and that's because Jesus lived the greatest life Jesus tells the Pharisees, verse 41, and now one greater than Jonah is here. Jonah was a great man, mentioned 19 times in the Old Testament, nine times in the New Testament. In 2 Kings 14, he makes an amazing prophecy about King Jeroboam II. And even though Jeroboam was an evil king, Jonah predicted that Jeroboam would recover most of the land lost by the previous kings. And it all happened. It all came to pass because God said he would never blot out the name of Israel, even though the, the whole nation had gotten so evil. Now, even to this day, the book of Jonah is read by devout Jews on the Day of Atonement. That's Yom Kippur. They do that for two reasons. First, because the book of Jonah is a continual reminder that no one can escape God's justice. Jonah ran, but God wouldn't let him get away. Hey, you can't escape God's justice. Second, they read Jonah because it's a continual reminder that no one is beyond God's mercy. No matter what you've done, you can be forgiven. Even Jonah was forgiven, and God turned around, swept him off, and used him, okay? God can do that to you, and he can do that to me. And yet Jesus embodies this same teaching 
in a much, much greater way. You see, the cross is where God's justice and God's mercy meet. At the cross, the full wrath of God is unleashed on Jesus. Every sin that we have ever committed was heaped upon Jesus. In Isaiah 52, the prophet Isaiah prophesied about the cross 700 years before it happened. And he said there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured. It was beyond that of any man. And his form marred beyond human likeness. And that's why we can confidently say that the passion of the Christ movie does not tell half the story. Isaiah 53 says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. The price that Jesus paid to erase our sin, it is astronomical. So we need to think about that. The next time you commit a sin, the next time you are swept away by pride or greed or anger or lust or envy or jealousy or bitterness or vengeance, every one of those sins is like one more pounding of the nail as it rips through the hands and feet of Christ. At the cross, God's justice, God's mercy, they meet. His pain is our gain. Isaiah 53, 5 says, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And then it goes on to say, by his wounds, we're healed. Praise God. Friends, you can have peace. You can have a peace that passes all understanding. You can be healed of all of your sins, past, present, future. Verse 11, Isaiah makes an astounding prediction. He says, my righteous servant will justify many. To be justified is just as if I'd never sinned. To be justified means to be declared righteous. Friends, it's more than forgiveness. It's even better than being forgiven. It's more than having the bad stuff erased from your life. It's actually having the good stuff, God's purity and his holiness and his rightness added to your life. Isn't that amazing? I close with this. There's a paradox in understanding what salvation in Christ is all about. It defies, it defies normal, uh, normal logic because two statements that appear to be contradictory are both true. The first is this, that salvation costs you nothing. It's entirely free. It costs you nothing, and it costs Jesus everything, which seems too good to be true. I've sat with many people not long ago, the man right on his deathbed, he would die the next day. And I walked through this and he says, is that all? Is that all I need to do? You know? He'd, ra he'd been raised in a works-based um, religious system. Is that all I need to do? Ask the Lord to forgive me, cleanse me, come into my life? 
Is that it? It's true. You see, the Bible says, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That means we not only escape a punishment on judgment day, that's great news, but it gets even better. We will be rewarded for the deeds we have done because of the righteousness of Christ that's flowing through us. The Bible clearly teaches this, 1 Corinthians 3.14, and in many other places. So on the one hand, salvation costs you nothing. Jesus paid everything. You paid nothing. And yet the Bible also teaches that salvation costs you everything. It really does. Let's read this together. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's true. When I put my trust in Christ, I died to self. I, the old Denny Johnson, is dead, gone, buried. The new Denny Johnson, with Christ now living in me, is born. That's what it means to be born again. I no longer belong to self. I belong to Christ. And how I live should reflect that, if it's real. Something similar happens when you get married, okay? On the one hand, you get married, it costs you nothing. A few bucks for a marriage license. On the other hand, it costs you everything, doesn't it? Huh? It costs you everything. Because you as a single person, you die, and you as a married person, you're now born. And in fact, the two become one, right? So before it was just the one, now the two become one. The old life of singleness is gone, the new life of marriage has arrived. In a sense, when you place your trust in Christ, you become one with him, just like marriage. Husband and wife become one. You accept Christ as your Savior and Lord, you become one with him. The only difference is he'll never let you down. And even the best spouse on the planet is going to let you down at some time. Okay? Jesus is the greatest of all time. He's far superior to Jonah. And he's far superior to any human hero. If you haven't done so, will you place your trust in him today? 